I never get to say this, so I'm going to take full advantage of it now. Please turn your Bibles to page one. not as effective if you have an iPhone, but whatever. This is our text this morning. It's very brief. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. That's where we'll start today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, first of all, I'm completely, completely dependent upon you to deliver this, um, this sermon this morning, I thank you for the, the book of Genesis. I thank you that it explains you, it exposes you, it's all about you. And I pray that we would, this text, even though it, it might even be a little technical today, would cause us to worship, would lead us to worship, would lead us to triumphant victory in you, would fill us with confidence and trust in you and hope in you and belief in you. I pray for skeptics today. I know there's probably several in this room. I pray, God, that you would make yourself known to them. Lord, a moment in your presence answers a lifetime of questions. So I pray that you would, um, today, that you would show us, you would reveal yourself to us. I pray like those um, men on the, on the road to Emmaus, Lord, when Jesus, you exposed and opened up the Old Testament to them, they said, were our hearts not burning within us? I pray that this morning as we read and study Genesis, our hearts would burn within us. Lord, I come to your word and say it's authoritative, powerful, divine, trustworthy, and we believe and the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. In Jesus' name, amen. What I would like to do this morning is give you a little introduction to the book of Genesis. But more importantly, what I want to do today is I want to give an introduction to God. Now, I know that seems a bit silly, but if you read Genesis 1, it starts like this. In the beginning, God. What happens in the book of Genesis is that the Bible starts by assuming God. It assumes that God is there. It's like the first phrase in Genesis declares a metaphysical assumption. That is, a present, transcendent creator God acts as the philosophical cornerstone of the entire biblical revelation. In other words, the, the Holy Scriptures assume God. But before we get to the questions of God and what the scriptures teach, what Genesis teaches about God, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to think hard about this question. I want you to engage your minds for a minute. Especially if you come to Genesis as a skeptic. Especially if you come to Genesis thinking you know exactly what it means. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, who controls the meaning? Who controls meaning? As we approach the book of Genesis... Who decides, who controls the meaning of the text? Who controls what this book means? Is it you, the reader? Like, hey, I know what this means. I interpret it the way I want to interpret it. Is it some very educated biblical scholar who tells us what Genesis means? Is it Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens that decides what Genesis 1 means? 
Is it the notes at the bottom of your study Bible? Who controls what this text means? When we read this text, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, literally fluttering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and, call, and God separated the light from darkness, and, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, separating the waters from the waters, thus making sky. And it was so, evening, morning, second day. And you see this beautiful prose, God said, and it was, and God said, and it was, and God said, and it was. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. Day one, day two, day three, day four. And then God said, let us make man in our own image. And the image and the likeness of God, he created them, both male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he made and it said it was very good. Who controls what that means? What does that even mean? Some options are you control that. This is what happens in Bible studies. You know, home Bible studies where you open the Bible like, well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means that the earth is very old. Well, I think the earth is very young. Well, then die, sucker. I hate you, or whatever. And people argue like this all the time. Does a church, capital C, determine what this means? Because I have a pulpit and a mic, does it, do I, does this church determine what this text means? I would like to suggest, suggest to you that the author actually determines what this means. If you think about it, most times when we crack open the front of our Bibles, the book of Genesis, we come with so many modern questions. When we read the book of Genesis, we have all these questions about origin and about age, about timelines, about dinosaurs, about Adam's belly button. We come with all of these questions. Why is this there and why is this here? Questions like, can I take this text literal? Can I take this text literally? Is it a literal document or not literal? Is it figurative? Is Genesis 1 and 2 evolution's sworn enemy? Is belief in Genesis 1 and 2 and belief in science incompatible? Not only do we come with questions, a lot of us approach Genesis with certain assumptions of what it means. When we approach the book of Genesis, some of us in here have probably made up their minds that Genesis means that God created everything we see in seven literal 24-hour days. That's what it means because it says day in there. And it says day one and day two. Others in here say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 mean that the earth is very young. Others say, no, it's actually very old. Others think that Genesis 1 means that modern science is wrong and evolution is the devil. That's what Genesis 1 means. Something that Genesis is poetic. And we shouldn't take it literally at all. And actually, the meaning of Genesis is quite irrelevant. Who cares what it means? It just means that God is and he's beautiful, and whatever. It doesn't mean anything. It means read it and have fun and do whatever you want to do. But back to my question, who controls what it means? I think it's imperative that we answer this question of meaning. Let me give you an example. I'm confident that everyone in here has seen the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz. If not, I don't know what to say to you. 
Maybe you get it on Netflix if you're still into that. The Story of the Wizard of Oz is a book written by Frank Baum in 1900. Now, if we interpret the story, if I asked you, what does the story of the Wizard of Oz mean? We're like, well, I know what it means. It's about a young girl and her dog, Toto, who was cute and awesome, overcoming the odds and defeating the powers of the wicked witches with the help of a few good friends. Now, if you've never seen the movie, I'm sorry, I just blew the plot line for you. Like, well, that's what that story means. That's, it's, it's good versus evil. It's classic. But if we observe the context of the 1900s when Frank Baum wrote this book, and we place the book in its historical background, there might actually be a different meaning that surfaces. One of the biggest political debates going on in America at the time that Frank Baum wrote this book was over the issue of whether America should continue to use the gold standard as a basis of the U.S. dollar or whether it should switch to silver. We now know it's neither, but whatever. Now, set in that context, the main line of the book and the movie might make reference to the central political issue of the day. Follow the yellow brick road. Remember that the yellow brick road led to a city, a magical city, the emerald city, Oz. Oz was green, possibly for green being cash money. Oz being OZ, the abbreviation of how gold and silver were measured. And when Dorothy did follow the yellow brick road and gathered all her little friends, all the way up to the, to, to, to the great Oz, she found that the wizard was one big fat fraud, right? But she had hope. And her hope was in her shoes. Now, in the movie, her shoes were ruby, but in the book, her shoes were silver, Ruby just pops on camera way better than silver does. <laughs> With this sort of background, it's been said that characters in the story probably represent different segments of American society at that day, at that time. The scarecrow can be interpreted as the farmers with no brains. The tin man factory workers with no heart just work to the bone. The lion was the political leadership of the country in that day, and they were all cowards. The wicked witches of the progressive east and west, but the heroine... Middle America, Dorothy from Kansas, represent Middle America. Now, what does the story mean? Is it good versus evil, or is it political satire? What does it mean? I think a most important question is, if you interpreted it differently than the author intended, does it even matter? Of course, many people would not force you to read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz as political satire. Maybe an English prof, but that's about it. No one plays it for their kid and like, you will see this political satire or else you, don't, you can't watch this movie. <laughs> we can just enjoy the movie. So maybe it doesn't really matter how we interpret The Wizard of Oz. But are there texts that do matter? What if you in- interpreted a stop sign differently? What if you interpreted a stop sign any way you chose? What if you got pulled over and like, well, I took that stop sign to mean look for bis- bicyclists, look for the cars, and then roll through it. How does the police interpret a stop sign? What if you interpreted your bills differently? That would be my choice. If I can interpret anything differently, it would be my bills. What if you got your AT&T bill and you're like, well, your $73 I took to mean $13. And so that's why I wrote you a check for $13. There are some texts that are so important that to ignore, ignore the author's intention will produce serious consequences for the reader's. 
Now, I believe that Genesis is this sort of text. It's a kind of book that if we misread it, it has huge implications and consequences on the rest of the Bible, on the gospel. That's why we're calling this the gospel prologue. And most, most importantly, on God. If you misread Genesis, it has huge consequences on God. I don't think we can get Genesis wrong. Francis Schaeffer, a great philosopher and theologian, comments about the opening chapters in Genesis and says this, quote, In some ways, these chapters are the most important ones in the Bible. For they put man in his cosmic setting and show him his particular uniqueness. They explain man's wonder and yet his flaw. Without a proper understanding of these chapters, we have no answer to the problem of metaphysics, morals, or epistemology. And furthermore, the work of Christ becomes one more upper story religious answer. We can't make Genesis mean what we want it to mean, and we can't blow it off as some ancient myth that has no authoritative significance in our lives as followers of Jesus. We must take the text of Genesis seriously. And if you're a skeptic in here, and I know there's probably several of you, you would do well to think seriously about the book of Genesis and its implications and what it's saying. So what does the book of Genesis mean? What is the book of Genesis saying? Actually, I'd like to actually answer this question before we answer any other question. And it's this. How do we read the book of Genesis? From here on out, as you read it for yourself, and I hope that you do, as we study it for the next several months on Sunday mornings, how do we read the book of Genesis? First thing I think we have to understand, number one, it's a book about God. This is very important. Write this somewhere. Write this at the top of the book of Genesis if you write in your Bible. I write in my Bible, so I'm just saying it's okay. (laughs) Or if you have iPhone notes in your Bible or whatever, right? It's a book. This book is about God. All of us, skeptic and Christian alike, begin with this book with questions. We have questions when we come to the book of Genesis. We have questions about sexuality. We have questions about ecology, cosmology. We have all these questions, and we might come to Genesis with all these questions. Genesis, answer the question of sexuality. Genesis, answer the question of cosmology. Answer the question about age. Answer the question about this and about that. If Genesis 1 is saying anything, it says that we can't start with our questions. We can't start with our topics and look for answers. It doesn't work that way. We have to start with God. We must. We must read Genesis like this first. God, what is this saying about you? What is this saying about God? Most of us don't really want to start with God. We don't have the patience for that. We would rather Google the answer. Like, I don't have the patience to find my way around to get to the answer. I just want the answer. So age of the earth, type that in. What does it mean to be human? Type that in. But when you go to Genesis, you can't go to those questions first. You got to go, who is God and what does it say about him first? We'll get to those questions. There will be questions answered about origin and cosmology and sexuality, sexuality and ecology. All of those questions will be answered, but the first primary question must be God. We must start with God. We have to start not with our questions, not with our topics, not with our arguments, but with God. Now, why do we have to start with God? Here's why. 
the Bible starts with God. The Bible starts like this, in the beginning, God. In other words, in the beginning, God was. He was. He was not created. This is not the, this is not the beginning of God. God was before. This is our beginning. This is the beginning of everything else we see. This is the beginning of you and me and mountains and animals and everything that the Hubble telescope takes pictures of. It's the beginning of all of that. It's like when Jesus told the Jews in John 8, before Father Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Before he was, I am. I am the eternal presence. I eternally existed. I eternally am. I have always existed. And you won't know existence apart from me. And this is what Genesis 1 is saying. Before the earth was, before the universe was, before ecology was, before the cosmos was, I am. Genesis is about God. And if you can come to Genesis 1 without all the baggage that we normally bring to this chapter, you will see that God is indeed the dominant figure in Genesis 1. Even more, check this out, even more than creation itself. Genesis 1 is about God even over creation itself. The word God is used 32 times in 35 verses as well as more than a dozen personal pronouns referring to him. God is everywhere in Genesis 1. It's all about God. So listen. To read this chapter, to read chapter 1 of Genesis with any other thought than God as your primary interest is to misread Genesis 1. You will misread it. And you will misread Genesis 2. And you will misread Genesis 3. And you will read, misread the entire Bible if you don't see God as the primary interest in Genesis and beyond. Actually, the author of Genesis, who was Moses, Jesus said he, it was, more on that later, would not have to be so interested in the time scale of evolution or the age of the earth. Though those are very important questions. That's not the point of Genesis. This is what I want you guys to get. It's not the point of Genesis. That's not what he's addressing. addressing. This is his subject. This is the subject of Genesis. The subject is God. God as creator. God saying, in the beginning. And then he's saying, let there be light. And it was, and he said, and it was, and, it's, and he said, and it was. He's the creator. Hebrew says that God created everything that we see from things that are unseen. Genesis 1 talks about God as sustainer. He brings order out of chaos. There's chaos in the beginning. We'll get to this next week. And then he brings order to it. He brings function to it. He assigns things function, order, purpose. God is a worker. Genesis 2, you see God's hands in the dirt, literally, forming man, working. You see God as communicator. God speaks to create. He speaks and it is. Actually, Genesis 1, as we even saw that, reads beautifully, almost as prose or poetry. It's like a song. It's like God sings creation into being. God is seen in Genesis 1 as an eagle fluttering over her young. The Spirit of God hovers over the water, literally. Meaning, the, like this eagle fluttering over her young. And you see God as an enjoyer. He's not a prude. 
He's rejoicing and delighting over his creation. He's saying, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. This is why we're often disappointed with Genesis chapter 1. Because we come to Genesis chapter 1 with the wrong questions. The question should be in Genesis 1, who is this God? That should be our question. As we read Genesis 1, who is this God? If you're looking for a scientific manual in Genesis 1, it's, if, it, if you are, if you're like, I, but I want a scientific manual in Genesis 1. Well, I hate to disappoint you, it's a very thin scientific manual. It's one chapter. Did you know that Abraham gets 12 chapters? Joseph gets 13, and the creation of the world gets one? It's not a scientific manual. The subject of Genesis is the creation and the redemption of God. Point two. Now, this point might upset some people. When I say this, I don't know if you've studied Genesis in the past. I'm kind of going to look at it in a negative way, and then I'll state it positively. But I'll state it negatively first. Point two. It's not, Genesis is not a book on modern science. Some of you guys might get a little bit mad at that. You're like, wait a second. What do you mean? I thought Genesis 1 answers all the questions of, uh, of, of, of science, all the questions of cosmology, all the questions. Let me state it positively then. Genesis 1 is a book on ancient theological history, comma, not a book on modern science. This book, the book of Genesis, and this point is a bit technical, but I want you to listen. There's some things that I have to say as we start the book of Genesis. I know that they might not be as narrative as I like them to be. It's not as like compelling as I like them to be, but I think they're important, so I want you to listen. You cannot, we cannot approach Genesis 1 and say, well, Genesis 1 is modern science. Academic John Walton in that book that we recommend to you, The Lost World of Genesis 1, says this. If we try to turn Genesis 1 into an explanation of modern cosmology, we are making the text say something that it never said. It's not just a case of adding meaning, it is a case of changing meaning. Remember we talked about meaning? Since we view the text as authoritative, and we do, it's a dangerous thing to change the meaning of the text into something it never intended to say. Now, if you think that Genesis 1 intends to talk about modern science, if you think it intends to talk about science and correspond with science, I would have to ask you, you would have to ask the text, which science? If Genesis 1 is about science, which science? Science changes, does it not? That's its nature. It's dynamic. It's not static. That's why you can't use your parents' college textbooks. That's why you have to buy $900 textbooks the next year. Like, wait, I just had that book, that class last year. Yeah, new textbook just came out. $900, please. Like, wait, how did you, what did you discover that cost me $900 in textbooks this year? Science is dynamic. So if you assume that the text of Genesis 1 should be understood in reference to current scientific consensus, what that means, what that means is that it neither corresponds to the first reader's scientific consensus 
nor last century's scientific consensus, nor whatever may develop in the next century. You're pretty locked. What is accepted as true today in science may not be accepted as true tomorrow in science. Because what science proves and provides is the best explanation of the data that we have at the time. Genesis 1 is not a book on modern science. It's a book on ancient theological history. And that's how we have to read Genesis 1. Now let me give you a caveat. Okay, this is a very important one, so pay attention. Though Genesis 1 is not modern science, it does not mean that the Bible is not scientifically satisfying. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I thought the Bible for all science. No, don't do that. The Genesis creation account, if understood rightly, does not contradict current scientific evidence. We're not saying come to Genesis and turn your brain off. That's not what we're saying. Rather, modern scientific findings illuminate God's act of creation by providing new insight into the nature of God. This is how we should understand science. Now, I know those of you in the fields of science and medicine or you're studying that in in college right now, there are certain times when we go into class or we go into a subject and as soon as these these talks about science go on, we we shut off either our brain when it comes to faith and we don't even bring that in because if we bring in the God talk, if we bring in that God sort of thought, what happens is we will look like fools, so we think. Or what we do is this. We stop listening to the scientific talk. We stop listening because we think, well, I know what I believe about Genesis, so I'm not listening to any more your, your babble, any more your devil talk person. So I'm not listening to you anymore, teacher. I'm not listening to you anymore, professor. You're the devil. And then we don't engage at all. That is wrong. They're both wrong. What we should do is this. You should be in science. You should be in medicine. You should be there as believers in God. And this is why you should. Every single thing that you discover, if you really understood Genesis rightly, especially the creation narrative, and if you get the theological key behind Genesis, which we hope to develop in the next several weeks, whatever science proposes that is deemed substantial, our response should be, wow, that really helps me to see the handiwork of my God. That's what should happen when you study science. Wow, that picture that the Hubble took helps me understand and see the handiwork of God. Wow, that, that biology, that whatever it is that you're studying, that helps me see how, how the handiwork of God is there. Those in fields of science and medicine need to understand that this is, you should not be embarrassed by Genesis. You should go to Genesis 1 looking for God. World-renowned researcher and head of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, in his book, The Language of God, proves, provides a reliable biblical view of science. He says this quote, clearly, The scientific worldview is not entirely sufficient to answer all the interesting questions about origin of the universe. There is nothing inherently in conflict between the idea of a creator God and what science has revealed. In fact, the God hypothesis solves some deeply troubling questions and why the universe seems to be so exquisitely tuned for us to live here. See, science has the glorious opportunity to fill in the minor details of creation. That's what science should do. 
You should study science and see all how, how all, all the minor details are filled in and of creation, such as how long ago the earth was created, what happened to the dinosaurs, why life has changed over time. But realize that when you're observing science and nature, the beautiful order of creation, the dance of the stars and the sky, and the faithfulness of the morning, you are observing the very nature of God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Science has this glorious privilege to observe and record to fill in the details of creation. And we need more of you in the fields of science and medicine. But the source of creation, the function of creation, and the purpose of creation cannot be concluded simply through scientific research. Can't be done. For these things, we have to look to the one responsible for the act of creating. We must look to God. Psalm 8 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Who am I that you're mindful of me? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made made him a little lower than the angels and the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. See, science and medicine are great. But they should not lead us to pride in thinking we have outgrown God. You should not study science and go, okay, I think I'm smart enough now. I've outsmarted God. I've outgrown God. I don't need to believe in God anymore. Actually, it should lead us to humility. Heard a story this last week of an American president. Every evening, the last thing that this president would do would be to step out onto the White House lawn. And if he had a guest, he would bring the guest along with him. And they would all step outside right onto the White House lawn, and they would stand there and look to the stars in the sky. they just look up. When they look for about a minute or so, the president would say, all right, I think we're small enough now. Time to go to bed. That's what creation should do. It should humble us to go, okay, I'm small enough now. I get it. The, the vastness of creation does not lead me to pride, but humility. Last point. How do we read Genesis? It's a book about God. Now you're like, wait, you're cheating, Pastor. Um, you've used that point already. I really want you to get this point. I mean, we're going to get to some really fun technical stuff in the next couple of weeks, some really fun answers that I think we can find, but we will not get to the bottom of anything unless you get this point. It's about God. The biggest questions that we have are questions of how. I would admit that in my own life. You might be able to admit that right now. The biggest questions that we have, especially when we go to the book of Genesis, is how. How? But the main subject of Genesis is not how, but who. Who is this? As God answered Job out of a storm, who is this? 
And he said, who, who do you think this is that placed the stars in the sky? Where were you when I made the morning stars sing together? Who shut the, the sea with doors and said to the sea, thus far you shall come and no farther. Who is this that does that? See, we don't ask who anymore. We don't look in the sky and the stars in, our, in ourselves in DNA strands. We don't know who did this. We ask how. See, humanism and secularism has taught us not to ask the question of who. Because that question assumes dependence. That question assumes accountability. That question would assume God. Even the intelligent design conversation seems taboo in some circles. You know why? I think we all know why. We all know that that conversation will lead one place. It will assume a creator. Which is fine when we talk about photosynthesis and DNA, but when the conversation turns into moral absolutes, into accountability, well, then we're all in trouble, every single one of us. And this is why every one of us knows something is wrong. Most of us would admit that. Most of us know that, at least that. Something is wrong. Something's at odds with the world. Something's wrong in me. Something's wrong in nature. It's beautiful, but something is wrong. The Bible says that you're at odds with your creator. There's a restlessness that you have in your soul to find meaning, to find peace. San Francisco is very spiritual. We do all these things to try to find peace. And being a spiritual city, we always look inward. If Genesis 1 says anything, it says that we cannot find peace looking inward. We cannot find God inward. Because Genesis 1 says that God is outside of us. He is creator God, and we are his creatures. And our response should be, as creatures of the living God, our response should be surrender and worship. Romans 1 says, For his, speaking of God, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I want you just just real quick to let that sink in. The Bible proclaims that you are without excuse. That every single human soul in this room has testified of God through creation. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, I can't can't prove this, but you know it. You know that you are without excuse. You know that you know God. You've seen him in your observations in this world. You've seen God in a sunrise or a sunset or in a newborn baby. You've seen him in your studies. You've known about him, yet you do not honor him. We do not give thanks that's due to him. The right response should be what the psalmist says in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And it goes on to say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
If you have but a glimpse of God today, do not harden your hearts. See, the warning here is do not harden your hearts, but the exhortation is actually an invitation into worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Did you know that God can actually make you kneel? Right now, he can make you kneel, but he doesn't. Actually, maybe you've even tested God that way. God, I dare you, make me kneel then. If you're real, make me fall down and worship you. Make me. But he doesn't. Instead, our creator God willingly kneeled for you. Willingly, he humbled himself. Willingly, he clothed himself with humanity. And so John 1 repeats Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And it goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. God can make you bow, but he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Creator God humbled himself to become a creature, to be created, to redeem you and me. Let me exhort you, encourage you, invite you to worship and bow down, to kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would take this very um, technical sermon and turn it into worship in our own hearts, that we would see the glory of God displayed in creation, displayed in the fact that you always were, displayed in the fact that this book is about you, that you turn to worship. I pray for those today that have had hardened hearts that thought that, hey, it's no big deal. I'm, I might be a, the creation, a, a product of God, but I'm not accountable to him. I can do whatever I want. I pray we would turn and repent tonight. I pray that we would receive that invitation to worship and bow down, to kneel before our maker, I don't think we'll really even know who we ever are, God, unless we realize that we've been created. I think the first thing that we have to understand is our identity as humans is we're created beings. If we don't get that, we won't get anything. So turn us to that tonight. Turn us to songs of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.